This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, in our 245th episode, we're rapidly approaching 250th, which we have some special stuff planned for. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was just telling Garrett about it before this recording, and he was kind enough to let me keep going, even <laughs> though we had to do this recording. Yep. <laughs> but in this episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new dinosaur a new lizard that was found in a dinosaur. Yes, gut contents. Yep. And a new puzzle game. We also have an interview with S.A. Bradley from the horror podcast Hellbent for Horror. And we're going to talk about Jurassic Park from the horror movie side of things rather than the scientific side of things the way we usually do. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Volcanodon. But before we get into all of that, we always like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we're thanking Chris... Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Ayumi, Paula Canthus, Lydia, Jackson Crawford, Sorian Brandy, Mayu, Dino Bo, and Mello Stego. And Mello Stego just joined. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you to everybody who's joined our awesome community at Patreon. We really appreciate it and we love getting all your messages. So if you want to join this growing group of people, then check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news, our first article is about a micro raptor that was found with a complete lizard inside its stomach. And I really do mean a complete lizard. That means it died before it got digested? <laughs> I, I mean, I think everything dies before it gets fully digested. Where in the process of digesting it died? Could have been a couple minutes Hard to say exactly, but <laughs> this article is written by Jingmei O'Connor and others and published in Current Biology. Jingmei really cranks out the articles. It's oh, pretty yeah. crazy. Well, she told us she's all about the research. She really is. <laughs> and this is another really amazing find. So just a quick refresher on Microraptor from our Dinosaur of the Day. I think of it as basically a bulkier crow with teeth. So it's largely black, we think. It's around the same weight as a crow, although a little bit heavier, maybe like 50% heavier. It also had a feathery tail and feathers on its legs. But other than that, pretty crow-like, I would say. And amazingly, this is the fourth time we've found a microraptor with gut contents. We've previously found it with mammal bones, also with fish scales, as well as an enantiornithine bird, also known as another dinosaur, all inside different microraptors. So... This thing was eating all sorts of different things. <laughs> we mentioned during our dinosaur of the day that it might have hunted at night because it had a sclerotic ring in its eye. That might be a little bit out there because just about all dinosaurs had these sclerotic rings, but it was eating so many different things, you know, it could be helpful to at least be able to hunt at different times of day. Maybe you'd end up with more opportunities to catch things unaware. There's still a lot of debate over whether it could fly or if it was just gliding around, especially because of those four wings, because that's controversial whether they just created drag and maybe helped with gliding or if they could have flapped them in any meaningful way. And then also with the tail with feathers on it, what did that do to flying? It's weird. But <laughs> this paper calls it volant, meaning they think it was flying. Right, because we've also had 
scientists say that they think it could be for brooding or other reasons not related to flying. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Why the hind limbs evolved feathers. We've heard about like it finishes the circle of brooding. It's kind of a fun hypothesis. And I probably don't need to mention it, but finding exactly what a dinosaur ate is incredibly rare and is especially rare for figuring out specific prey. Sometimes we find things like some teeth or some bones and you can classify it as say a mammal or another dinosaur or something, but actually having enough bones that aren't all broken to smithereens where you can actually tell the species of the thing that it ate is really amazing. The lizard that Microraptor ate is also brand new to science. So they actually named <laughs> the lizard in this paper well, that's fun. Yeah. So a lot of the paper is actually about this lizard. They named the lizard Indrasaurus, and that's after the Hindu deity Indra, which was swallowed by a dragon in battle. <laughs> Fitting. Yeah, it's pretty great. I usually wouldn't bother mentioning the name of the lizard, except that it was a dinosaur slash dragon <laughs> eating a lizard, and they came up with a really good name for it. It appears to be a juvenile or subadult lizard, probably making it easier pickings, I'm thinking because it doesn't look like it was fully grown, but it still takes up a very large portion of Microraptor's abdomen. Well, Microraptor wasn't that big. It wasn't, and this lizard is like, I don't know. It's, it really seems like it would have been tough for Microraptor to swallow this thing. There's some fun paleo art of it eating the lizard, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty much the limits of what it could get down its mouth. What if the lizard killed the Microraptor? <laughs> so I don't think that's the case. They didn't actually speculate um, what killed the Microraptor, but it did fully swallow it. So yeah. it's like deep in the abdomen. It doesn't look like it kind of choked on it or anything. But maybe it weighed it down so much it couldn't get away from however it died. Yeah, like it couldn't fly anymore or something. Yeah, or run fast enough or something. I guess it's theoretically possible. We don't know. Sure. It, it doesn't really look like it got eaten because we didn't find it in like a copper light and it's still articulated, but maybe it could have drowned or something because of it. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't say. In any event, though, this lizard that it ate was definitely a solid meal. When I look at it, it just looks like a huge blob of bones in among the ribs and everything. But fortunately, these paleontologists are amazing at their job and they made a really nice drawing highlighting the skull, teeth, ribs, and limbs of the lizard. So you can really see how it was arranged in the Microraptor's gut. And once you see the drawing pointing everything out, you're like, oh yeah, now I see it. Now I can see where the lizard, you know, where its tail is and where its mouth is and everything like that. But before that, it's, it's really hard to see. <laughs> so basically the way it's arranged inside the Microraptor is that the head is near the bottom of the abdomen. So thinking like kind of at the very bottom of the stomach. The legs are a little bit higher, and then the tail is all the way up at Microraptor's sternum. So it's really stretched out. It's not really all that compressed. And I kind of wonder if some of that might be taphonomy. So after Microraptor died, and then it started to decompose, these bones maybe could have sprung out a little bit, like maybe the tendons on the lizard were holding together longer than the stomach of Microraptor was keeping it in a shape. It's hard to say exactly how that pieces together. I don't think there's been any taphonomy studies on birds eating lizards and how that works out. <laughs> but in any event, it does look like it ate the lizard head first, since that's what ended up in the bottom part of the stomach. And the authors had a really good line about that saying, quote, the lizard is largely complete and articulated, confirming the current perception of Microraptor as an agile, opportunistic predator that, like extant reptiles, including raptorial birds, ingested small prey whole and headfirst, end quote. That's the easiest way to make sure your prey isn't fighting you back too much. <laughs> Just swallow the whole thing. Yeah, headfirst. <laughs> oh, true. Yeah. Yeah, go for the head and it can't bite anything. Interestingly, they think the specimen is partly faked. They say, quote, it is extremely likely that the crushed skull has been manufactured and or enhanced. The morphology of the dentaries is inconsistent with other Microraptor, end quote. So they believe the rest of the fossil is genuine, but even just me looking at it, I can see that the teeth look completely wrong. The skull is not at all a Microraptor. But other than that, it's a pretty convincing fake skull. Some of these fakes are really, really impressive. So I think it might be prudent to throw this Microraptor in a synchrotron and double check the rock chemistry 
it's amazing in the synchrotron, different types of rock will light up different colors and you can see what it's made out of. And if it's from a different piece of rock, you can usually tell that the striations and the chemistry don't line up the same. So I think that'd be a good idea. Maybe that'll be in a future paper. I think one of the most interesting things about this find though, is that the Microraptor eating the lizard is actually what preserved it. <laughs> because we talk all the time about how you don't find small animal fossils because a lot of small animals just end up as prey and they just get eaten. And then once they're eaten, they get, you know, smashed up and disarticulated and strewn all over the place. But in this case, since the Microraptor died before digesting it or scattering its remains all over the place, it actually kind of wrapped it up in a nice little meat package <laughs> meat package <laughs> to be buried and preserved rather than it just scattering because something that small it's so easy to lose the bones plus if you're out in the field looking for fossils noticing these little tiny fossils like a little lizard is really hard to do even if it does preserve so it's pretty neat we've talked before about this kind of thing happening in coprolite but i don't remember ever seeing a new species named from inside another animal it's just awesome what an awesome meat package. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Maybe we should put that on a shirt. <laughs> Up next, we have another dinosaur bird creature. <laughs> this one was written by Scott Hartman and others and published in Pure J. And it's named Hesper Ornithoides Mesleri. Hesper Ornithoides translates to Western bird form. And the Western is for the Western US. And the rest is probably obvious Ornithoides it's bird-like. It's a bird-like dinosaur. And the Messleri is after the Messler family. So if I'm saying the family name right, that means I'm saying the species name right. Otherwise, sorry. <laughs> it's a troodontid, which means that it's small and birdish, thus the name, but it has much more leg than arm and then the raptor-style claws like you see on a typical troodontid. Including the tail, it's estimated to be about 89 centimeters long or 2 foot 11 inches. So Pretty small even for a troodontid, and definitely small compared to some of the other dinosaurs that are from the Morrison Formation, which is where it's from. <laughs> Specifically, it was found in eastern Wyoming, in Douglas, Wyoming, which is straight east of Casper, if you're familiar with Wyoming. And it's from the late Jurassic, probably about 150 million years old. If you know about the Morrison Formation, you already knew this, but that does make it the, quote, oldest diagnostic specimen from North America known for more than teeth, end quote. Oh, that's good. Speaking about troodontids, I should say. Okay, yeah, because a lot of them are known from teeth. Yes. In fact, troodon was just teeth. It was found in 2001 on private land and then first reported at SVP way back in 2003. So this has been a long time in the making. And before finding Hesper ornithoides, they discovered a supersaurus. A much bigger dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So they found the supersaurus, but it was under a lot of rock. So they started digging it out and removing what's called the overburden from above it. And then the shovel went right through Hesperornithoides. And I think they probably scooped a couple pieces away from it first too. <laughs> and then they realized, oops, <laughs> there's something much smaller. Because if you're looking for huge sauropod bones, you could see how you'd miss this little tiny thing, especially since you almost never see them in the Morrison formation. Mm -hmm. But they did notice, and then they pieced it all back together. And after piecing it together, they did still recover quite a bit of it. They got a lot of the skull, a bunch of vertebrae, almost an entire leg, including the sickle claw, most of the arm, also with claws, and a couple of other bones. The way they described how it was posed, too, is a little bit heartbreaking. They say, quote, the hind legs are folded in a crouching or resting position. The head is turned to the side underneath the left manus, and the preserved mid-caudal series wraps around the torso, reminiscent of the sleeping posture preserved in May and Synornithoides. Oh, was it protecting itself? Yeah, it's like crouching with a hand over its head and its tail curled around it. Poor little dino. I don't know what was going on, but it didn't end well. We know that much. Mm. On a happier note, with Scott Hartman as the lead author, you know there's going to be an amazing skeletal drawing to go with it. And it looks like the back of the skull might have been where the brunt of the impact of a shovel hit because it's just pulverized into about 100 pieces. 
but his skeletal drawing is so precise that it has all of these little individual pieces oh, wow. like redrawn <laughs> that have been put back together. It's really cool. They also found three pieces from the sclerotic ring, which is the weird eye bones that dinosaurs have, as well as a pair of hyoids, which are the bones that support the tongue. So they found some really delicate bones. It's not just that they found a small dinosaur, which is already pretty impressive for the area, but they found a lot of the harder to find bones from this dinosaur too. It's either an adult or nearly an adult. A lot of the bones are already fused, which means it was pretty much full-sized at that still sub three feet long, so about a foot tall. It was found in a wetland-type sediment, and in an interview, Scott Hartman told the University of Wisconsin Hesper ornithoides might be, quote, more heron than desert dweller, end <laughs> quote, <laughs> which I really enjoy because it is important to remember that the environment that they're found in now is rarely anything like what it was back then. And picturing an animal with this body type acting like a heron is really interesting to me too. But I guess a lot of animals, including Microraptor, ate fish. And I just don't think about like feathery dinosaur bird things going after fish. It just seems so strange to me. Really? What about pelicans? Yeah, but they they have such different heads. Yeah. You know, they got that big scoopy <laughs> bill thing. <laughs> True. And yeah, and then some of the other birds too. It just seems like a beak could be good for plucking. But I guess if you have teeth, that could help too. Anyway, they nicknamed this individual Lori, and they also said, quote, Lori probably would have had wing feathers, but they would have been too small for her to fly, end quote, which is kind of what we were talking about with troodontids in general. They have a lot of leg, not as much arm. I think the reason that this paper took so much longer after 2003 to come out is because they did an insanely thorough phylogenetic analysis for this dinosaur. So they talk about how they looked at some different sets of basically near bird dinosaurs, which have been used, and they decided basically let's start over <laughs> and get more characters measured and include more dinosaurs in the mix. So they included 501 what are called operational taxonomic units, basically species, with up to 700 characteristics from each of them. Wow. It's an insane level of phylogenetic research they were doing. Most interesting to me is how the flying dinosaurs separated out relatively neatly from the rest of these bird-ish dinosaur dinosaurs. <laughs> Essentially, Archaeopteryx, Microraptor, Rahanavis, and Sword of E are all on different branches, but other than that, every other flying dinosaur seems to share a common flying ancestor. So it's not a lot of back and forth between flying and not flying. Archaeopteryx, like I said, and Microraptor are way off in the boonies. They're, it's just kind of like a random offshoot that might have been able to fly. And like I said, we're not even really sure that Microraptor could fly, and Archaeopteryx is also still pretty controversial. So all of the Enantiornithines, Confucius Ornithids, and modern birds are in the same little group based on their analysis, which I just think is amazing. Yeah. I could see why that was a lot of work, too. Yes. And as a result of that, they said, quote, avian flight originated as late as the late Jurassic or early Cretaceous, end quote. So really, it's pushing this evolution of flight quite a bit later than what some previous studies have seen. And if we're lucky, and this holds up <laughs> for some years of research, we'll be starting to get a better picture about where the bird origin actually came from which will really help with a lot of research about dinosaurs. So I guess it was worth it going through 501 of these OTUs and getting 700 characteristic measurements from all of them. Not all of them, because some of them are missing bones, obviously, but still crazy. I also want to mention, in addition to the Supersaurus that they were originally digging out, they also found a Stegosaur plate and some large theropod teeth nearby. So there's some clues about what it was living around. And... Hesperornithoides is already on display at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center. I don't think you've mentioned this one, Sabrina. It just went on display a few weeks ago, but I'm assuming it's still on display. I think it's going to be the permanent home of the specimen. There's a whole section of the paper that talks about how it was discovered, and then it got donated to a museum, and then donated to another museum, and that museum changed its names and then merged with another one. Oh, wow. So its name has changed a couple times. It's a little bit confusing, 
but I think it's at the Wyoming Dinosaur Center to stay now. It's probably a good home for Lori. Yep. <laughs> or Hesper Ornithoides. I couldn't find out why they named it Lori, by the way. I tried. Yeah, I saw that too. A bunch of articles that were just referred to it as Lori. Yeah, it just starts with like, and Lori. It's like, well, who's Lori? It might have been the person who found it. I saw a picture of the people who found the dinosaur, but they didn't mention, and Lori's on the left or anything. So I don't know. That's why I just call it Hesperornithoides. <laughs> I see. There's probably a good story behind it. Probably. In other places that you can visit and learn more about dinosaurs and see dinosaur things. So in Montana, Makoshika State Park has a new dinosaur paleontology tour where visitors can get a tour through the visitor center and exhibit hall, as well as the paleontology lab. And then you can hike to see a hadrosaur fossil in the park. You can also touch fossils, some of them, and talk to paleontologists. Nice. Montana has an amazing amount of dinosaur resources for such a sparsely populated state. Yeah, well, lots of dinosaur bones there. It's a good starting point. Yeah. At Dinosaur Isle Sandown in the UK, if you go to visit, you can see a new juvenile T-Rex replica skeleton at the Dinosaur Isle Museum, which is another great place for dinosaur resources. Mm -hmm. It's on loan from a local fossil collector, Barry Gibson, and this T-Rex is 11 and a half feet or three and a half meters long, and it will be on display until this fall. That reminds me, I think there's a conference going to Dinosaur Isle or nearby soon. The 67th Symposium of Vertebrate Paleontology and Comparative Anatomy and the 28th meeting of the Symposium of Paleontological Preparation and Conservation is going to be there from September 10th to 13th. That sounds cool. It does. There's so many good conferences. Yeah. I guess if you're in the UK, let us know if you end up going to that one. In Michigan, the Grand Rapids Children's Museum has a new traveling exhibit called Amazing Dinosaurs. And in this exhibit, you can touch fossils, you can dig for hatchlings, and you can hear a T-Rex roar. So this exhibit's open from now until mid-October. Jurassic World The Ride had its grand opening at Universal Studios Hollywood in California. So Blue was there, naturally, <laughs> as well as Chris Pratt, Bryce Dallas Howard, and Colin Trevorrow. Wow. Yeah, well, apparently Trevorrow was hands-on with developing the ride. Oh, cool. Yeah. And making blue took more than two years and three generations of blues. <laughs> so there's like an animatronic blue somewhere in the ride, it sounds like? No, this is a performer inside a blue suit. Oh, and that raptor encounter area thing near it? Yeah, so then blue comes with a raptor handler, and she can move her jaws and eyes and has sounds. So a lot going on. They also have two other dinosaurs that walk around the ride. There's Juliet the Triceratops, <laughs> who is gentle and lumbering and comes with a handler. And Juliet takes two performers in the suit. Is it just like one of those horse costumes where there's one person in the back and one person in the front? <laughs> Similar, yeah. But they also have cameras inside so they can see where they're going. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, Juliet also has a drippy nostril. So if you come close to her, she'll sneeze and you get sprayed. And then they also have Tango, the baby velociraptor. That's a hand puppet. Gotcha. I'm more interested in this triceratops. I'd be yeah. trying to see if I could figure out where the one person ends and the other person begins in the suit. <laughs> <laughs> it might not be too hard. I don't know. Yeah. I doubt the performers can stay that long in the costumes at any one time. It just seems weird that they're still doing that. It seems like you could have a robot or something that would operate the back legs so you wouldn't need two separate people in the costume. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they made Juliet extra heavy. <laughs> could be. All her snot is weighing her down or something. There's too many things to control at once. You need another person in there just to handle everything. Could be. Or maybe because it's a theme park, the crowds, there's so many people in the crowds that it's hard to navigate with just one person. And last, thanks to Stephanie who shared this one with us. So there's a pretty cute dinosaur app. It's called Tap Dig My Museum. It's on Android and Apple. It's a museum simulation and puzzle game where you dig up dirt patches to find dinosaur fossils. And you start with a disused museum. You create an exhibition stand to display your fossils. And then you work on restoring and developing the museum. And you can do this by excavating fossils. And then I think you piece them together to make famous dinosaurs. And then you get visitors to your museum because they want to see your famous dinosaurs. And then you earn coins. It's a free app. There's ads and in-app purchases. Uh, might be something I have to try soon. Interesting. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. 
What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with S.A. Bradley. And as a quick warning... We are talking about horror, which sometimes means talking about violence and adult themes and things that are a bit more edgy than we might normally talk about. So if you're not comfortable with that, then you can skip ahead. And if you're a patron and you want an even edgier version and longer version, <laughs> we'll be posting an unabridged version <laughs> of our interview on Patreon. We're joined this week by S.A. Bradley, who is the host of the Hellbent for Horror podcast, where he explores everything related to the horror genre as art and social commentary. Bradley is also the author of the book, Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy, and is a guest blogger on Lit Reactor and contributing writer to magazines like Evil Speak and Medium Chill. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to talk a little bit about dinosaurs. Uh, like most kids, I was a big fan when I was a tot. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And I should also mention, we just did a crossover. We're doing this double feature of dinosaur talk. So the other half yeah. of it is on Hellbent for Horror. So if you want to hear more of this discussion, potentially with a little bit more of a horror slant to it, then definitely check out his podcast. There's definitely more of a potential probably on my <laughs> podcast for horror to suddenly squeeze its way in. Yeah. yeah. Well, dinosaurs and horror kind of go hand in hand. Absolutely. Well, I agree. Uh, and uh, I mean, the thing about dinosaurs, now you guys, obviously, you're very well schooled in dinosaurs. You're folks who have a passion for it to a point where you were kind of journeymen that just really enjoyed it to becoming people who go toe to toe with paleontologists on your own show. Uh, and you did all that research yourself. You had a, a what, a wedding that was uh, dinosaur motivated. And I mean, it's like, that's, that's pretty astonishing stuff. A guy like me, I know the dinosaurs from my youth and I had models of them all. I had all the books, but when I think dinosaur, I can't think of a movie that's not somewhat horror re related or a cautionary tale that has dinosaurs in it. It's like dinosaur equals cautionary tale or other or monster. So I bring in things like Godzilla as well, even though Godzilla's not, you know, there's no Godzillius, <laughs> Fumius, or whatever you might call there it. There is a Gojirasaurus yep. now, though, that was named after oh, Godzilla because yes. of the importance of Godzilla. <laughs> oh, Gojira is so awesome. I love that. What does he look like? I hope he has those scales. He does have scales, but he's he is a carnivore, so there's that going for it. Doesn't walk upright, though. No, because no dinosaurs did. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was bipedal, at least, so it's got that going. 
And then being from the late Triassic, it's just like pretty much every other late Triassic dinosaur being a small bipedal carnivore. Although small relative to Godzilla and later dinosaur size, not relative to human size. It's like right. still 400 right. pounds. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a fullback for uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I was going to ask for our listeners who might not be as familiar with horror movies as they are with dinosaurs, <laughs> can you explain what makes a movie a horror movie? Oh, it's a great question. Of course, what I always like to say about horror is that it's a beautiful art form and it is uh, tailor-made for uh, allegory and metaphor and uh, even parable. I get a lot of questions about this because most people define horror movie by the movie that they hate if they don't like horror movies, or they define it by the movie that they absolutely love and they stick their nose up at every other movie that might be somewhat near a horror movie. And there is a lot of stigma around that where people go out of their way to change the uh, genre. You'll see that a lot, especially around the Oscars. You know, oh, that's not a, oh, that movie about zombies? No, that's really uh, a lighthearted farce thriller. What's a lighthearted farce thriller? I don't even know what that means. You know, uh, Get Out became social justice thriller. And I'm like, okay, I see what you're kind of saying, but you're basically making a point that there was never any, what, social justice being talked about in all of these movies that came out in the 70s that were about women's lib and Rosemary's Baby. You're, you're throwing them to the fire. So it's this whole thing about a stigma. And it's because... It is something that talks about the darkest parts of us, even though we all have a shadow self, not everybody wants to go there. But I like to think that Carl Jung was right, that if you don't uh, take a look at that shadow and occasionally address it, shadow just gets darker and bigger and it's at your peril. Uh, and then next thing you know, you're on TMZ doing some kind of crazy <laughs> thing and it's the, the shadow looking for that attention. And so denying the darkness doesn't help. Uh, so I always look at Har is a safe handshake with that, but there's such diversity out there. And that's where the name game starts and why people hate all of horror on one film. So I say, you got to keep it simple. So the definition of horror I go off of is the dictionary definition, which is an intense feeling of fear, disgust, shock, or dread. So a horror film is a story that goes for fear, surprise, shock, or dread, or disgust. Uh, all of those things are viable. Any of those things is a mood. And I think it's really important. That it's not just because those ingredients are there. It's why do they put them there? Mm -hmm. So why is so important? I mean, there's scary moments in Bambi. I'm not going to call Bambi a horror film, but it has two of the most galvanizing, traumatizing things for children ever in, in that in that cartoon and probably paid for many a psychiatrist's couch. Uh, <laughs> but at the same point, then there are horror movies where nobody dies, but you have this sense of dread. And the idea is, why are you trying to scare me? Bambi is, is trying to make the happy ending happier by taking to the lowest of the lows so that when they triumph over these things, uh, it really feels elating. A horror film is not interested in that. A horror film is telling you to reflect on that or maybe making a point that, you know what, Bambi might find herself in another fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes me think Jurassic Park is just like scratching the surface of horror movie because it it does kind of follow the typical act one, two, three of, well, they suffer, but it's mostly so that there's a happier ending sort of. Well, perhaps there is an action movie end to it, but I really think that Jurassic Park is pretty dark if you take a look at some of the subtext that's in there. And I think it's Spielberg. So, you know, um, Spielberg made a movie called War of the Worlds, which is something that I would double feature at points with Jurassic Park, because the two of them, you just take space aliens instead of uh, <laughs> dinosaurs. And you've got this really terrifying set of situations that happen. And then it ends Spielbergian. I mean, that's the thing that Spielberg's known for. You know, I'm not going to let you go home crying. You're going <laughs> to go home. You're going to ha be happy to lick another ice cream cone. And, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I don't think it takes him away from the onus of horror, especially in that, uh, which is Jurassic Park. But I still think that when you talk about Jurassic Park, there's a dark side to looking at how much privilege we have 
and we are kind of destroying everything with that privilege. Unwitting privilege. It's not like you're running around stomping on the ground and stuff. You just, why not have that one extra thing? And Jurassic Park talks very much to a hubris that is fueled by technology. People like to look at this movie as, oh, it's an anti-technology. And I go, ah, technology is like the, the bullet in the gun, right? <laughs> it's not the gun. It's not the hand that's pulling the trigger. And so the thing that's really devious and dark in uh, Jurassic Park is that you have money is the motivator for everything. You know, they're talking about carnivores and extinction all the way through this movie, uh, saying that like, like that's something that happened in the past, <laughs> that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. But you're watching this entire empire that's being built fall because of the dollar and the perception of the dollar from one person to another and the use of the dollar in, in, in ridiculous ways and the bribery and the loss of uh, integrity that can happen over that. And before you know it, you're caught in something. It could be Enron. You know, it could be Jurassic Enron. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, you, you have these things that are all motivated by the hubris. And I love why I also think it's a great horror movie is because you have such an uncommon villain it's not the dinosaurs. It's a happy, gray-haired British grandpa <laughs> who smiles from the very beginning of the movie and frowns at the end. And you like him because he shows up with champagne. But here's a guy that shows you in every frame that he could give a shit about you. Yeah. He has a forward motion. He has a singleness of purpose and he's going to do it. Oh, I want to get dinosaurs and make them alive. What's the first thing he does? He brings a helicopter to blow all detritus all over the place to a, a live site. He has absolutely no clue what, how many days, years of work he's letting his rotor blades blow away into the sands for the people that he's supposed to come to only because they're going to try and save his skin. But I mean, this villain is benign, really, right? He's benevolent in some ways. You know, He brings money. He's done something with it. We don't know. And he's obviously not a dinosaur guy because he hasn't spent his money doing things about dinosaurs for decades. All we know is that he's got a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And now he's got himself a new pet project, bring dinosaurs to life. So he probably liked him a little bit when he was a kid, but he didn't dedicate his life to it. In fact, I think there's a line, he's not a digger. You know, <laughs> the difference between those that do and those that buy, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it was interesting too. You mentioned how this hubris and like the you like him from the beginning to the end. It reminded me of the the line where he goes, "The only guy I have on my side is the blood sucking lawyer," and it's yeah. like, yeah, he is the other villain, right? You're the two that care about money. Everyone else is thinking about, wait, are the dinosaurs going to get sick because they're eating the wrong plants? Are they going right. to escape? Is this safe? You know, should yeah. should you actually do this? Is it going to be sustainable? Right. <laughs> Yeah. Is this safe? And I think it asks, asks some age-old questions. I mean, the questions that are happening in Jurassic Park are the questions from Mary Shelley in 1898. You're sitting there looking at, yes, you can look at it as the uh, Industrial Revolution, or you can look at it as uh, man should not play in the world of God, but it's really both. Mm -hmm. you know, one doesn't work without the other. It reminds me of that quote when you're talking about the God complex, basically, where they say God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man, man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, I guess that's sort of a better quote to sort of mean what the movie is going for than life finds a way, which is sort of a more like ephemeral right. happy quote. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I see a dirtiness to that quote. Uh, life finds a way. I don't think that uh, the movie sets up a happy ending with that. You know, it's all about context. You put life finds a way in a maternity ward, it has a whole wonderful <laughs> You have life finds a way in the talk about I didn't ask to be born. They're <laughs> born in the wrong epoch. I mean, and they're brought into this. Uh, they don't know, of course, that they're in the wrong spot. But, uh, you know, what do we do? Okay, lesson learned. Now we trash them all. You know? I mean, it's, it's like, oh, what a mistake. You know, this was a mistake. Colonialism was a mistake. Let's just set fire to the village. I mean, it's just madness. And so uh, I think, uh, yeah, there's a, lot, uh, there's a lot of 
interesting darkness in this very fun and a buoyant and scary movie. There's a thrill ride, but it's more than a thrill ride because Spielberg's that good at what he does. When he really gets down to brass tacks, those aren't thriller sequences. Those are horror sequences. Mm. So is that, you think it's those horror sequences that made it so compelling to the audience? Like, what do you Mm. think made Jurassic Park such a, I don't know, like a A hit? Huge, yeah, just a massive hit. Well, I think just the look of the dinosaurs are that it's that good, right? I mean, uh, there was nothing quite like it when it came out. And so if you had curiosity about dinosaurs, that's one thing. But I do think that the 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 horror aspects of it definitely helped push it over because there had been you know dinosaur cartoons and, and things like that beforehand. Uh, and you know, they did well with the kids. How do you bring in somebody like me? who had a great fascination for it before. Well, there has to be a little bit of quote unquote meat on the bone. And I think that the horror accentuates the humor and the lightness that's in the film. And that's something that Spielberg was very, very good at many times in his career. If you watch a typical Spielbergian moment is when the lawyer first goes to, I guess, Costa Rica, a, uh, where they're drilling out the amber and uh, they're getting a lawsuit against them. And the Spielbergian thing is the guy gets off the, the plane. He steps in water. He's a fish out of water. He staggers around. He bumps his head on everything. <laughs> he trips and falls on everything. Everybody else is gliding effortlessly, right? They've been there forever. They're of the land. This guy in a suit and tie is bumbling and falling and saying the wrong thing. He must have five to 10 pratfalls by the time they actually <laughs> show the amber. And that is a Spielbergian character. You know, you sit there and you have all of that frivolity in there and he's hitting you as hard as he can with this guy's a dope, but it also brings humor. It's a very Disney-esque thing as well. So he he does hit on that kind of piece. And you look at the character of uh, uh, Grant, Dr. Grant, you know, what do we know about him? He doesn't like kids, but he really likes digging. And every time he touches something that's technology, it falls apart. (laughs) So those three things happen over and over and over and over again. And he's a likable character who is really kind of misanthropic. Mm-hmm. And and yet he's he's not because Spielberg puts that thing to it. So there's a lilt in the movie. I mean, the, the real terror of that movie, there's a quick five-minute thing in the very beginning, but it really doesn't hit home until an hour. You know, Then it's dread, and then it turns into like full-on terror with some really creepy things that are happening with kids. Like I was going, why are there kids here? And it's like, why are kids involved in this at all? Why do they bring these two characters? And it's like, oh, of course, they're going to have to be threatened. You know, a guy getting eaten on a toilet gets a laugh. <laughs> Two kids stuck underneath a windshield, you know, of a, a of a truck with the snout of a T Rex on the other side pressing down, freaks you out. I think all that whimsy makes that sequence so memorable, and it gives opportunities for visual impact that normally doesn't come with films that aren't in the horror genre. Where would he have worked in the water drop vibration? Mm-hmm. Where would he have worked? Yeah, I mean, there's so many wonderful little tropes that he does in there where he introduces things like, oh, look at this shovel. And that shovel is going to come back in handy later. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talking about uh, the plants, that's going to come in handy later. Uh, and he, he uses that as character as well, the character development. People have to be really good at using tools. But the idea of just the trees moving. Right, mm-hmm. and he he does that little joke in the beginning where uh, you think, oh, here comes a dinosaur, and it's really just a huge crane bringing a dinosaur that's in a box, and we don't get to see the dinosaur; we just see the box. And then later, it pays off by the monsters coming out of the trees and the goat. You, know, you set up the idea that T Rex is going to eat your face off by having the goat not be eaten by mm-hmm. the T Rex. You know, just let it sit there, and then later you don't have to show it at all. All you show is a dangling chain and you go, the T-Rex is there. And those are very horror motivated things, putting those little stingers in people's heads so that later on that it's an immediate addressing and it's all visceral. So I think uh, horror also helps movies like this because it goes at a gut thing. You know, mm. Sometimes horror works like music. Music, you don't think about why you like a song while you're listening to it. You feel it. 
And hard does the same thing. It goes past the uh, the think bone <laughs> and find, <laughs> finds its way into the gut and uh, that visceral emotion. So primal meets primal with dinosaurs. Yeah, that's a, the perfect way to put it because there are a few movies that I found when I was thinking about horror movies for your show. And there are so, just a small handful of dinosaur movies that aren't horror and they're all really bad. Like, <laughs> I mean, right. Unless you go into a totally different genre, like documentary style yes. or something. But right, like, so right. there's Land Before Time as a kid was pretty scared through most of that movie because there's this constant sharp tooth thing kind of chasing them, right. literally the entire movie, it's chasing them and it's killing off the parents and it's just like, it's a gnarly villain. But then you've got stuff like Theodore Rex, <laughs> where they tried to make it like a comedy and it just, oh, hey. it doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, just that sounds so horrible. Yeah. But uh, speaking of Jurassic Park, I think it's really interesting. I mean, there's some great dinosaurs in there first off. Being a kid, my thing was Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus and Triceratops and I was afraid of T-Rex. And I think this movie really worked a lot for me because- it really hit on that primal level of, man, T-Rex scared me as a kid because I had some old how and why books that showed it like eating everything that was nice, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> any nice looking dinosaur. Now, of course, that dinosaur may have been highly poisonous and would kill me in a second, but it's smaller than this guy. And this guy's got a really big head and big teeth. And so I was frightened of him. And I think uh, Spielberg knew that and Crichton more than anybody knew that. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting stuff in the movie. I guess I'd ask you guys a question. How do you think the science is of this movie? Really good for the time that the movie came out. Like Crichton yeah. definitely did his research. And they, in terms of the, um, the special effects and everything, they did a lot to kind of bring what scientists knew of dinosaurs to mainstream media. So the fact that they are fast and smart. Yeah. And also, I mean... It depicted their posture in just like the perfect way. Their tails aren't dragging on the ground. Another really weird trope that we didn't realize because since Jurassic Park was basically where we entered into, you know, our knowledge about dinosaurs, it was one of the first dinosaur movies we saw. When you go back and look at stuff that's even just a few years older, you see a lot of herbivores depicted as carnivores. Mm -hmm. Like they didn't even pay attention to the most basic things about dinosaurs in some of these movies. Right. Like you're the brontosaurus, for example, they'll have sharp teeth and they'll be eating people. <laughs> like that happened all the time in these movies. And you're like, what, right. how did they get this idea? Why didn't they just pick a dinosaur that ate people? <laughs> Why are right. they making the brontosaurus do it? <laughs> well, no dinosaurs ate people, but yeah. Oh yeah, true, 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 true. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is another trope that was common that Jurassic Park seemed to finally end. There weren't any more cave people with dinosaur movies mm -hmm. after 1993. That I know of. Yeah, there might have been. Like, <laughs> Tammy and the T-Rex came out after Jurassic Park. So it did. Who knows? <laughs> and then you see the way they depicted the T-Rex and you're like, man, you this was after Jurassic Park? And that's how that's what you're going with. Yeah. Oh, man. Anything is possible when the inept grab a camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But overall, yeah, the Jurassic Park was phenomenally accurate, especially for the time, too. Every so often a movie hits that right balance. And I don't think that it's it's a very easy to do. But if you look at Jurassic Park, there's so many great setups to it. I mean, one of the first lines that you hear in the movie is you are alive when they start to eat you. <laughs> it's during that, it's during that introduction to a grant and how he doesn't like kids and some kids saying, a, a turkey with uh that's really fast. Who cares? <laughs> and it sets up the whole Velociraptor thing without ever seeing a velociraptor. And he carries that claw with him. It's like the monkey's paw, it's like the hook. And uh, he, uh, that constantly, we can't get it out of our head that this thing moves fast. There's two more of them that are gonna be on the sides that you haven't even seen. And it's gonna come in, it's gonna slit your stomach and let your intestines fall out with this hook. And it moves, it, I think in that, uh, that, obviously they didn't move this fast, but I think they said something like 60 miles an hour or something. Yeah, like probably that. not quite that fast, but definitely a lot faster than anybody can run. So mm -hmm. then it's just semantics at that point. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. And I think uh, it's neat how Spielberg goes for like real pure horror. Like the, he repeats things like the speed without a payoff. So there are several times that something runs in the foreground 
and nobody mentions it because they don't see it. <laughs> and you're like going, oh man, oh, and, and nothing happens. And the super famous and deservedly so famous attack on the trucks by the T-Rex, there's not a second of music. There's no scoring in that. It's rain. That's a very wise horror move. The really good horror movies don't go dun, dun, dun. They go dun, dun, dun after, or they go dun, dun, dun before, but they don't do it during the moment. That's a very elongated scene to go without scoring. For, for Spielberg, definitely. I think that might be the longest any of his movies has gone without scoring since like Duel with the truck. I mean, that movie has extremely small amounts of scoring, but once he and John Williams came together, he really started working that texture into everything. And so it was really an interesting departure and how you don't see the entire beast often until you do. And then when you do, all, all bets are off. But it's, it's really interesting how many little uses of darkness and shadow and quiet when you don't expect there to be quiet. Uh, the, the death of uh, Nedry, his death, I mean, once again, it's really spielberg where the guy can't even be nice for a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, even, when, even when he's scared, what do you want from me? I'll throw things at you. And you're like, oh God, Steve, <laughs> come on. He can be scared, right? He's allowed to be scared. But uh, that whole sequence is made so much better by not showing anything. And it's played not for suspense, that's played for horror, that's primal horror. Mm -hmm. When he turns and he sees it, it's like, oh, hello, have you ever been in a situation like that, like with a dog, <laughs> anything? And you're just like, what the heck? And it, where did you come from? This is random. Like I go running in the hills in Northern California and some every so often somebody's dog runs way ahead of the, the owner and I'll be running and all of a sudden a Doberman comes walking over a hill. I'm like, oh, hello, how are you? <laughs> and I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> and uh, that kind of thing was what was going on there, except you have this Dilathosaurus. It has the secondary surprise as well to even freak you out more. The, the gill sack that uh, turns into a fanning demonic head or uh, frond on this thing. Uh, but it starts quiet. And you have a five-minute sequence of this guy like struggling to get his Jeep out of, a, out of a hole. And you're not seeing, but you're hearing. And then when you do see it, it's just in another spot. There are so many horror movies that use that trope. And it's so effective when it's done right. The Innocence may be one of the best ones where the ghosts just keep in the corners of the frame and they look out the window, they think they're okay. And they look and it's across the river, just standing there looking at them, oh. not doing mm -hmm. anything. It's the scariest thing to just know that you're being watched. And then of course, like a really good horror moment, it has a payoff, which is very strong. And it's not a quick payoff. It misses with its venom the first time, and he gets to roll and scream and cry a little bit, and then he gets hit, and then he gets in the truck, and it's in there. I mean, it's just, it's so, you can take that and put in whatever monster from whatever movie, now, a serial killer. You can put a serial killer. You can put Freddy Krueger in there. And Crichton does that himself with the way that he writes. I think uh, it's also important to, to look at the character Malcolm, mm -hmm. the chaos theorist. The idea that your voice of reason is the chaos <laughs> is really interesting. He's, he's the Cassandra. But I think what's really interesting is how well he's portrayed. I mean, he's this horny guy. He's, he's all id, and which makes perfect sense for a guy who is that close to the edge of seeing predictability becoming unpredictable, that he knows that nothing really <laughs> lasts forever. He's smiling while he's insulting people. He's... <laughs> hornier than ever, right? you know, he can't stop talking about sex the entire time or trying to pick somebody up. He is the closest to the logic of nature. He is the true nature person there. And I think that's really interesting that uh, he is the Cassandra and you would think that the guy that would be the Cassandra would be Grant, right? Mm -hmm. he's, the, he's the main character. But no, instead you have this, this other guy because you need it, it, the story of nature is that freaking dark. That's the thing that I, I ding Jurassic Park for is that they bring someone along. She's a botanist, right? You have this whole thing of how you bring a botanist. Let the botany really become an issue, right? As opposed to just this MacGuffin, really. 
It's a good point. I think all the other times we've talked about Jurassic Park, our focus has been on the dinosaurs. So it's good to yeah get all these other perspectives and things that I wasn't even thinking of. Yeah, other elements. <laughs> well, it's inter- I mean, it, how can you not talk about the dinosaurs? They're glorious. <laughs> I mean, rewatching it again, uh, it's aged a little bit, right? I mean, the 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 matching has gotten better between uh, live action matting and and CG, mm-hmm. but. It's still really good. And the mixture of practical effects yeah. is just so wonderful. I mean, that big foot just coming down in the in the foreground of the frame. Yeah, of course, that's that's the selling point. That's all Spielberg had to show <laughs> to get full funding for that film, of course. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. And you have these moments where the uh, dinosaurs are benign, you know, they're just they're just hanging out. And I think that that's really good where you get that wonder. So for our listeners, where is the best place to find out more about you and all of your work? Oh, my goodness. Best place to find me is on the web. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram. Uh, I am hellbent for horror on both Facebook and Instagram. I am hellbent horror for some weird reason. That's what Twitter gave me uh, on Twitter. Uh, I also have a web page called hellbentforhorror.com. You can find that very easily. And when you're looking in there, you can find uh, direct links to all of my podcasts. My podcast can be found on Spotify as well as iTunes and uh, basically anywhere that you normally would get a podcast. If you're a podcast listener, you can find Hellbent for Horror. Uh, I also do have a book, as was mentioned before. It is called Screaming for Pleasure, How Horror Makes You Happy and Healthy. Yes, yes, it does make you happy, I'm telling you, and healthy. And uh, it's basically a deep dive into all things that are creepy and crawling go bump in the night. It is a love letter to the things that go bump in the night. And I basically talk about how horror can not only be thrilling, but it can also be healing. And it can you can take a look at how horror redefines itself generation by generation to maintain its ability to connect directly to the anxieties of the time. It's there to help you folks. There's a reason it doesn't. <laughs> Yeah, I like your tagline a lot that I'm here to remind you that you used to love horror movies and you secretly do. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I love it. And when I meet someone in, in polite company and they ask me what I do and I say I do a horror podcast, if they're horror fans, we talk for a good 20 minutes about their passion. Uh, and if they're not horror fans, we talk for about 20 minutes about <laughs> it because everybody is curious and everybody is impassioned by it. And I'm actually doing a show about this. Uh, I'll be in New York City. I'll be performing a show called My Horror Manifesto at the Caveat uh, NYC. It's a club on Wednesday, August 7th at 9 p.m. Caveat is uh, New York's newest speakeasy bar for playful, intelligent nightlife, they say. So I'll be there to discuss the beauty of the much maligned genre horror and how horror does not deserve the shame that it has. Join us for drinks, you know, experience uh, some chaotic perspectives, because I do have a few, like talking about how Dirty Harry is a horror film, and learn a few ways to enrage that horror snob in your life. And I will be there signing my book as well. And uh, I hope to see you. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, folks. I hope you had fun. I certainly did. I hope we talked about the movie. (laughs) Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Just one last reminder. If you want to hear more about dinosaurs and horror, then make sure to check out our companion episode or just in general, check out Hellbent for Horror for more horror conversations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again, Scott. That was an excellent discussion. It went on way longer than (laughs) you can tell from this brief recording. So definitely listen to the longer unabridged one if you're looking for a longer discussion on horror. And if you're like me, you probably now have a long list of horror-related dinosaur movies that you want to watch, or maybe just horror movies in general. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Volcanodon, which was a request from Odin Sutherland and Dinosaur4602. So thanks. Volcanodon was a sauropod that lived in the Jurassic in what is now southern Africa. It was quadrupedal with column-like legs, a long neck, and had a long tail. Based on the skeletal remains found, it was at least 21 feet or 6.5 meters long, though Gregory Paul estimated it to be 35 feet or 11 meters long. It's also estimated to weigh 3.5 tons. Volcanodon was an early basal sauropod. Not much is known about the skull or the neck. I was thinking three and a half tons and 21 feet sounded pretty big until you said sauropod. Right. And now it sounds small. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's just how it goes for sauropods. (laughs) But it was estimated to weigh three and a half tons. It was an early basal sauropod. Not much is known about the skull or neck of Volcanodon. The forelimbs were more similar to later sauropods, though about three quarters the length of the hind limbs. So proportionally, they were long. Yeah, but... That means that it was kind of angled downwards towards the head. So maybe it was a low browser, not like a giraffe titan type that was angled straight up. Yeah, maybe. Volcanodon had a large claw on the first toe of each foot, and the claws and second and third toes were broad and nail-like, which is similar to Tadzodosaurus, a close relative sauropod that was found in Morocco, but it's not similar to other sauropods. Volcanodon had spoon-shaped teeth. There's only one species, there's Volcanodon caribaensis. It was found in 1969 in Zimbabwe, and it was found on an island in Lake Kariba in northern Zimbabwe, which used to be Rhodesia. Lake Kariba is the largest man-made lake in the world. That's a little fun fact in and of itself. I had no idea the largest man-made lake in the world was in Zimbabwe. Yeah, me either, until I researched this dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> so B.A. Gibson found Volcanodon. And a team collected the fossils between October 1969 and May 1970. It was described in a brief note at a symposium in Cape Town in 1972 by Michael Roth. The genus name means volcano tooth. The skeleton was found in sandstone on island 126-127, doesn't have an official name, (laughs) in the Volcanodon Beds sediment in the Batoka Formation with flood basalts. At the time Volcanodon lived, there was a lot of volcanism and lava flows. The genus name refers to the Roman god of fire, Volcanus, and it's combined with the Greek word odon for tooth. And then the species name, you can guess, refers to Lake Kariba. Volcanodon is one of the first dinosaurs found in Zimbabwe. They found a fragmentary skeleton, pelvis, sacra, most of the hind limb and foot, right forearm, right thigh bone, and tail vertebrae, but no skull was found. Jeffrey Bond and Michael Cooper found more fossils later, including a shoulder blade and part of a neck vertebra. Originally, Volcanodon was thought to be a prosauropod. They found knife-shaped teeth near the fossils, and prosauropods may have been omnivorous, but it turns out those teeth are actually from a theropod that may have scavenged the Volcanodon carcass. Roth thought at first that Volcanodon was an advanced prosauropod, and then in 1975, Arthur Cruikshank showed that it was a sauropod. Volcanodon's fifth toe is the same length as fifth toes on sauropods. For a long time, scientists thought that Volcanodon lived in the early Jurassic or the Triassic-Jurassic boundary and thought it to be the earliest known sauropod, but Adam Yates in 2004 found Volcanodon was much younger from the late Jurassic. Yeah, we don't have the greatest stratigraphy in Africa. We need to do a lot more paleontology there. Figure out these dates. More proof that Volcanodon wasn't one of the earlier known sauropods is that in 2000, scientists described the sauropod Sanosaurus from Thailand and that lived in the Triassic, so well before Volcanodon. Volcanodon probably lived in a desert-like environment, and its fossils are now stored in the Natural History Museum of Zimbabwe. Cool. I don't know if that one's on our map. I'm going to have to double check. And our fun fact of the day is that some dinosaurs may not have digested their food fully and opted to spit out parts of undigested food like owls do today. So this this process is called egesting, basically the opposite of fully digesting. And by the way, the generic name for an owl pellet is a gastric pellet, 
because it's any pellet in the gastrointestinal system. The Microraptor paper that we discussed earlier about, you know, eating a lizard <laughs> referenced an awesome paper that we missed from last year. It was published in Scientific Reports by Xiao Ting Zheng and others, and it's about six different gastric pellets from Anchiornis. So Anchiornis may be a troodontid, as the authors classified it at the time, but no matter what, it's a fairly close relative to Dromaeosauridae as well as Microraptor. And both Anchiornis and Microraptor were opportunistic hunters in that they went after both fish and lizards. But like we said, Microraptor has also been found with birds and mammals. And also in Jingmei O'Connor's recent paper, they pointed out that over 200 species of both Microraptor as well as Anchiornis have been found. So these are both incredibly well-known dinosaurs. And there have been four Microraptors all found with gut contents and four Anchiornis all found with gastric pellets, which means that they likely had very different digestive systems. Even though they were eating similar animals, Anchiornis seemed to be making these gastric pellets. It would really help to find a coprolite, though. But as far as I know, we don't have any coprolite of either of these two dinosaurs yet. It's also probably kind of hard to tell that a coprolite came from a specific species. Unless you find something really specific in it. <laughs> or it gets buried with it somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty gross. <laughs> if it was buried with it, I mean. <laughs> and on that note, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes. Also, you can join our growing, amazing community of dinosaur enthusiasts at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader